Amen. You know, it's just, it's just another meeting of people. If there is no sense of the Lord's presence in the house, it's just another meeting of people. But the Lord says that he inhabits the praises of his people, that he sits enthroned upon shouts of praise. That's where the Lord delights to be. It's where his name is being praised where we are celebrating his goodness, even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems as if things may be going in the opposite direction, when we choose to bless his name, to say, Lord, we trust you. We're doing our best to believe in you. Holy Spirit, fill us freshly so that we will be able to love you the way you deserve to be loved and praise you the way that you deserve to be praised. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. I'm going to borrow the title that the songwriter came up with and use it for the title for the preacher's message this morning, but I want to give credit where the credit is due. That's just a great way to put it. Hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I want to give you three categories of hope this morning, and we'll, I'll give you all three of them at first, knowing we may not get to but two of them, but that's, that's, uh, that's our direction this morning. Hope, first one is this. Hope, when the church has left you dry, Hope, when the church or religion has left you thirsty. Now, John chapter 7 and verse 37 and following is going to be the spot we'll look at in your New Testament that deals with that, that addresses that, the words of Jesus. Hope, when church or religion has left you dry. Second one is this, hope. When shame, when shame has gripped your soul. Hope. When shame has gripped your soul. And the third one, hope. When death is at your door. Hope when the church has left you dry. Hope when shame has gripped your soul. Hope when death is at your door. Hope has a name, and its name is Jesus. Jesus. I want you to find John 7, 37. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37. If you'll... It's just a good thing to have your own Bible, you know. You can make some notes, underline, highlight, date. It's good to have your own Bible to carry with you and have when you need it. John chapter 7, verse 37 says this. Now, on the last day, 
the great day of the feast. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. For the last several weeks, the last few months, we've been spending time on these Sunday mornings talking about the Spirit of Jesus being poured out upon the church. Tried to address, well, which Jesus, which spirit of Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about the spirit of Jesus who was in a physical form, no longer in the form of God? Philippians 2 would say he emptied himself, divested himself of all of the attributes of God that he had when he was in heaven before Bethlehem. And in order to become a man, he had to give up that that characteristic of omnipresence, being able to be everywhere all at the same time. And other aspects of, of who he was in heaven before he was ever born of Mary, he laid those aside in order to become a human baby, to grow up, as a man, for one reason, to have blood in his veins. Because the law of God would be there is no covering for sin. There is no forgiveness for sin apart from the shedding of blood. And in order for you to be forgiven, for me to be forgiven, for the world to have the hope of forgiveness, Jesus had to come as a man and literal blood to flow through his veins, and he lived a sinless life. His blood was not tainted, so when he went to the cross, it was a sacrifice without spot or without blemish. And he took in his body your sins and my sins, and he died on the cross paying the price of death. The wages of sin is death. Death, sin is going to kill. It's always going to kill. Choices that violate what the Lord would say is best and right. When we make those choices, something dies. Sooner or later, something dies. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus took and embraced the penalty for our sins, and we hadn't even been born yet, but he saw you coming, he saw me coming, amen, and he knew that I wouldn't make all the right choices, I wouldn't live a way that would please him in every regard. He knew I would be a sinner, and so before I ever committed them, he took my sins yet to be committed in his body when he hung on the tree. He died on the cross 
for your sins and my sins, and the only way that that could happen was for him to be a human and for the blood to be poured out. Thank God that blood was without spot and without blemish, that the sacrifice was accepted, and we know the sacrifice was accepted by God the Father because the grave is empty on Easter Sunday morning. If it hadn't accomplished anything, then the body would still have been there, but it was proof that in Christ we find forgiveness. In Christ we find freedom. In Christ we find hope through his death on the cross because the tomb was empty and Jesus was raised from the dead. He's alive. He's alive, and we are forgiven who put our trust and our faith in Jesus. Well, which spirit? That... that That would have been a wonderful spirit, the spirit of Jesus who who was obedient and and who, who suffered but still held true to his mission. If that spirit was the one to be poured out to fill us, but it wasn't the spirit of the human Jesus. Scripture is very clear, and we've been on. I won't try to backtrack all of that, those times of study, but Peter would make it very clear in his message on the day of Pentecost, that it was this exalted Jesus, reclothed with all the power that he had in heaven before he he emptied himself of those attributes and was born as a human baby. He's now reclothed with all of that. He's been given the name that's above every other name because of his humility and his obedience to the Father's will. There is no greater name than the name Jesus, and it is the name the spirit of the one who bears that name, Jesus, who has been poured out from heaven and who is desired to possess the spirits, the souls, the lives of every child of God, the spirit of the exalted Christ. That's why, folks, a drug addict can know freedom because it's not just the drug addict trying harder and the drug addict going through a drying out speed, but it's because the spirit of the living Jesus who knows no defeat, who knows no captor, who knows no limits, the spirit of that Jesus coming to possess and fill and from the inside out set the captive free. Amen. So, so which Jesus is he speaking of here? Which spirit of which Jesus is he speaking of? The earthly Jesus, the exalted Jesus, it is the exalted Jesus who would be poured out upon those who were to believe in him. You back that up. It's a prophecy. Jesus is saying there is a time coming when it doesn't matter who you are, male or female, old or younger, married, single, here or there, if you're thirsty, if there's a thirst in your soul, if there's a thirst, a longing in your heart that nothing has been able to lastingly satisfy, or in a healthy, life-giving way satisfy. If you'll come to me thirsty, then I will give you drink. If you will come to me and you will keep coming to me, I will cause there to be from the inside of you. You won't have to hook up an umbilical cord to some other source out there, but from within you, from down deep within you, in your soul, in your spirit, your heart, there will call, I will cause there to be rivers of living water to come up and out of you. 
The word for living there means not only life-giving, putting life in, but that kind of living means that it has the power not only to bring to life where it is setting, but to convey life. It, it is deposited to impart life, but it flows out to convey life. So the ones who have been bound, the ones who have been bound by all kinds of different thirsts, finding their thirsts satisfied in Jesus. And as that thirst is satisfied in Jesus, there's a dimension of living that they didn't even know was possible. And then when you hear their stories of how they've been made alive and brought to life in Christ, there's power to change you that'll come as a result of what is happening in them. That's what he promised. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, where, 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 where pastor, did you get that line that, that is unsettling, that hope when church has left you dry? The context, the setting in which Jesus spoke that statement is a setting of religion, of hymns, of Scripture being read. Of, of dutiful observance to what would have been the religious order of the day. It was a great feast held in Jerusalem. And the high and holy day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus was looking into the faces of no telling how many people who were coming into the temple because that's just what you did on this feast, during this feast. You came to the temple. You brought your offerings. You prepared to hear the scriptures spoken and taught. You, you were expecting to, to sing the psalms. You, you were expected to bring sacrifices of various levels and types. And on this day, Jesus looking out into the faces, evidently, of a whole bunch of people who were engaged in their religious duty, but he looked into their souls and he saw them dry. He saw them empty, but going through the motions. And his statement indicates you can go through all the religious motions. You can go through all the church motions. You can be surrounded by all kinds of church people and religious people and moral people, and then the atmosphere can be saturated with the sound of Scripture and songs, and you can still be thirsty. Oh, folks, I'm so glad that the Lord knows us that well. What he's saying is, it, it, it's not good enough. It, 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 it's not supposed to be you playing a game in church. It's supposed to be something far beyond that. And it's a shame, it's a shame when the church gets in the way of the real Jesus. 
And that's what was evidently happening here. Here, here, is, here is Jesus for this period of time, 33 years, when he's a man, no longer God in the fullest sense, without any restraint, he limited himself and took upon the form of a man, became obedient to the death of the cross, Philippians 2, the apostle Paul. So during that limited time period, he only had a certain number of words he could speak. He only had a certain number of places he could be. He only had a certain number of days and nights that he would spend. And when it says here in John chapter 7, that there was one subject, there was one theme that so animated, that so moved the heart of Jesus that he couldn't stay in the background any longer. He couldn't be quiet anymore. That he steps forward, steps up. We don't know what he stood up on, but the, but the word here, the, the verb for cried out, means, means the loudest sound that it is possible for the human organs of lips and vocal cords and lungs to create. He, Jesus, God in the flesh, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he would say. I don't do anything except what I hear the Father say, tell me to, to do, I, that I hear him instruct me to do. And here he waits until this great day of the feast when the crowd would be filling that area of the temple and he stands up and it says he cries out. He cries out. What does he cry out? He cries out this very peculiar statement to folks who on the outside look like they ought to be full of religion. That you, you, that they're there because they want to be, you would think. They're doing what they're doing out of the traditions that have been passed down to them. But Jesus is saying, in effect, there's some of you who are here. And in all that you're going through, all that you're doing, it hasn't satisfied your thirst for God. You're, you're, you're wanting to find me. You're, you're doing all of these things that you think would please God. But there is still a thirst in your soul. Folks, listen, I don't mean to say anything against churches or the church as an institution, but it's just the truth. The church is not Jesus. Jesus is not the church. So when we give ourselves full bore without any restraint to pursuing a passionate involvement in the church, we need to understand that in the process of doing that, we can be engaged with people, we can be engaged with all sorts of new and fresh information, and the Word of the Lord has wonderful effect upon our lives. But the Bible is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Bible. Now, I know that sounds heretical, but folks, it's the truth. This, this isn't the sum total of who Jesus Christ is. This is true about him. Every syllable is true about him. It gives us insight as to who he is. This is a book 
that he wrote. It is true about him, but it is not him. Oswald Chambers, years ago, young believer, went to heaven early in his life, but many years ago, wrote that his wife actually put it together in the form after he died, my utmost for his highest. And, and he, would, he would write some very unusual things. And when I, when I came across this the first time, I, I, thought, I thought I had spied heresy in the writings of Oswald Chambers. And here was his statement. Sometimes places where you have found God, God will no longer let you find him there. You, you, you have a regimen for your quiet time when you, when you read your Bible, when you pray, how you do it. The regimen for church or service, a various one. He was saying, and, and his point was, Jesus loves you. And he can at some points in time realize that the third party has gotten in the way. You say it should not surprise the church from time to time for a certain way of approaching Bible study, a certain way of pursuing service for the Lord can in time seem to dry up. It's the motion without the presence. The motion without the sense of the Lord's presence. Now, folks, listen. We got to have permission. You got to know you have permission to raise your little old stubby hand up and say, that's me, Lord, and I don't know how I lost the sense of your presence, but I've lost the sense of your presence. Because it's in his presence that there is fullness of joy. It's from the sense of the flow of the life of Jesus in our hearts that we, we have the desire to go on with him. But whenever things just deteriorate into ritual and motion and habit, predictable, and it's good in the general sense, but Jesus is saying, if in the middle of all of your religion. On this great day of the feast, if anybody will say, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, Lord, this hasn't satisfied the thirst of my soul. My religious duties are trying to perform things and do things that I would think would be pleasing to God. My heart is still thirsty. There is a God-sized thirst in the soul of every man and woman, that the only one who can satisfy that thirst is the person of Jesus Christ. And so my longing needs to be for him. For it is not saying that church attendance is wrong. It is not saying that taking your quiet time seriously and methodically is wrong. It is not saying that. It is simply saying that where there could come a time in your life where you're doing the things you've always done for 15, 20, 30, 40 years as a believer, but you wake up and you realize, I, 
Lord, my heart loves you. And I trust your word. And I, and, and I love being, I know I need to be with brothers and sisters in Jesus. But Lord, somewhere, somehow, I'm dry. I'm dry. <laughs> then what do you do? The good news is we don't get in trouble for being thirsty. We don't get in trouble for recognizing that. If anybody is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Not to a Christian friend in order to get to Jesus. Straight to Jesus. Not to a church meeting in order to get to Jesus. Straight to Jesus. Not by reading all kinds of Christian literature in order to get to Jesus. Straight to Jesus. Close some books. Establish some silence. Get away and seek him. And what does he say he'll do? Here's the bottom line question. Is your soul flowing with rivers of living water or is it not? If it isn't, then there's an antidote to that predicament. And it's a renewed focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your church. I thank you for literature. But I'm thirsty for that which only you say you can give. Rivers of living water. I was going over this with a guy that ran a big ranch in South Texas some years ago. And he was having a drinking problem. And he knew the Lord. And, you know, prominent in his profession. But I could tell just by looking at him that there wasn't real victory working in his life. He was, he was trying to straightjacket himself into quitting that alcohol business and having that on him. And I was taken to this verse for him. I said, I said, look. Alcohol is not your number one problem. That's not your problem. That just indicates your thirst. That just means you're thirsty for something. You're trying to find, you're trying to self-medicate. You're trying to soothe some pains and, or, or whatever it is. Get away from some memories or drown some shame. But your real problem is not the booze. Your real need is for Jesus to do in you what he said in John 7, 37. That if you'll set your sight, you'll set your heart to keep seeking the Lord as, as best you can. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I've got this thirst and I keep taking it here and it keeps killing me and drawing my, ruining my marriage and all kinds of other stuff. But Lord, if you can satisfy my thirst, if you, I'm thirsty, Jesus, and I want to drink from you. I said, you get up. He got up before the chickens. He was up early. Watch the sun come up. You, you, take, you take your New Testament, John 7, 37, over there, put it in your lap, sit in your pickup truck, watch the sun come up, and cry this out to the Lord. Lord, I need you to satisfy my thirst. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need whatever this means. I need this. He said, all right, I'll do it. Some weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe three months went by. And I got a call early one morning. And he said, David, I think I got it. 
I, 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 think, I think those rivers of living water, I think something, he's out there in the middle of mesquite, black brush, and cliche and, 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 and tanks saying, I think I got it. I think the Lord. And let me tell you something. Immediately, immediately, the alcohol addiction broke. Immediately it broke. But the things that were, he was taking his thirst to, broke. And it wasn't some program necessarily, though those can be very helpful and timely in certain situations. But in this situation, for this young man, it was the sense that the Lord Jesus was giving drink to the thirsty places in his soul. And as a result of that, the Lord just did exactly what he promised that he would do, rivers of living, of living water. Changed. Changed. In the middle of nowhere, looking through the windshield of a Dodge pickup, four-wheel drive pickup truck with a cattle feeder on the back of it. Lord, I'm thirsty. Lord, I'm thirsty. Lord, I'm thirsty. And I'm asking you to satisfy. Folks, that's why some folks, some men chase women. That's why, that's why some women chase men. That's why pornography can do what it does. That, that can, why lying and bezeling and all that stuff can try to do, trying to buttress this stuff that's going to make us feel like we're a man, like make us feel like we're a woman. Make us feel, it's a thirst. It's a part of your old person. It's a part of who you are. And Jesus is saying, bring your thirst to me. I know where you've been taken. But you bring that thirst to me. Somebody let that in this morning. It, it, it's not about shackling you. It's not about straightjacketing you. It's not about continually beating yourself up. If all of those things could have happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But it's because there was a thirst in you. And to satisfy the thirst, we take it here, we take it there, we take it to all the wrong places. Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. Come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me. And keep coming to me. It's a present tense. Keep coming and keep drinking. Lord, I don't even know what to drink from you really means. That starts when there begins to be the sense of his presence. That he's more than just a word. Lord, I need for you, for you to make your presence real to me. And then, Lord, as I sense your presence... Then I want you to show me what this means to drink from you. And he does the rest. Hope. When church, religion, morality, whatever spot you want to fill that blank with, ought to, should do, when that's left you dry. Because the Lord knows what your thirst is. You don't have to send him a memo on here's what I'm struggling with. He knows it. And he loves you anyway. <laughs> and he is determined if you'll let him to set you free and to make you new and to carry you into the rest of your destiny that he has for you. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. And the name is Jesus. Hope, when shame 
has gripped your soul. Hope, when shame has gripped your soul. Find, find John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The Son of God may be glorified by Lazarus' sickness. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Back to verse 2 again. And it was Mary, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Would you find, hold your place in John 11, and turn with your left hand to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Who is this Mary? Who is the sister of Lazarus? Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. More than likely, a prostitute, a woman of the streets. There was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, but she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii, 500 days worth of wages, and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, Mary, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, just customary politeness. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, no kiss of greeting, customary again. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Your faith has rescued you. Your faith has set you free. Go in peace. Hope when shame has gripped your soul. We don't have the blow-by-blow of who she was with and how long she was involved in all of the things that she evidently was involved enough in for the public to give her a reputation. But what we do know is that there was something about the sense in the presence of Jesus that caused her shame of where she had been and what she had done to lose its grip on her soul. She knew that when she went into that Pharisee's house, She was stepping into enemy territory. She went with her eyes not on who she would be in the company of in a certain sense of the word. She went with her eyes on the one whom she somehow sensed loved her right where she was. That though she was guilty, 
in whose eyes she was not filthy. That by the way that only his love and his mercy and his compassion could express itself, she sensed hope in the middle of her guilt. Does that make any sense? It, it, it makes a ton of sense for ones who have been forgiven much in order that the love greatly can flow forth. But ones who hadn't been, don't feel like they got very much to be forgiven of, can have a real problem with this. Why didn't Jesus, why doesn't it say in Luke that Jesus loved the Pharisee? It says that in, in, in John 11 that Jesus loved, loved, agape is the verb, loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And one of them was a street-walking, prostitute woman, or had been. The Pharisee had none of those blemishes on his record. He was squeaky clean. You poke him, and a verse out of Psalms might come out, or Moses would come out. He'd done everything right. Except compassion was not something that he was very familiar with because he didn't feel like he needed it from God. But when you're so good, when you're so squeaky clean, when somebody pokes you and a verse of Scripture comes out and maybe all you've ever been is just the straight and narrow, it can almost be that in that perspective, you feel like you've backed God into a corner and he has to bless you because you've been so good. And then when you find yourself struggling and then you look over here and you see some street walking somebody who comes to Christ and, and the joy of the Lord is in them and they've got freedom and they, they have the sense that they're forgiven. It's like this is, they know a God you don't even know about and they do. And they do. Trying to keep the law and do everything perfectly right was enough to get our sins forgiven, to get us into heaven. The cross was a waste of time. The truth of the matter is, the Apostle Paul would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The prophet would say, there's none righteous, no, not one. A super religious, self-righteous attitude that conveys itself in judgment toward everybody else who doesn't measure up to your standard can send you just as much to hell as any of the other categories that are called sins in God's sight. So here's this woman walking into this house uninvited, but wanting to be close to Jesus. She moves in she begins to weep. She begins to anoint his feet with all, do, do the things that she was doing just because she wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. Which side did Jesus fall out on? He fell out on her side. 
Not that he approved of what she had done and, and what she had been, but that's why he said, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. Well, how did her faith express itself? We don't have an indication that she said anything. That I confess, I believe, we don't have any, that she was baptized, I mean, how, how was her faith being expressed? Without words, it was an affection for the person of Jesus. That her heart was toward him. Her heart was appreciative of him. Her heart was overwhelmed with the mercy that she was getting from him. Oh, my goodness, folks. It may not be church. It may not be among the moral community where you'll find yourself overwhelmed by the mercy of God, but that is the heart of God for you. And that heart of God is going to be found in the sense of the presence of the real Jesus. Lord, shame has gripped me. Shame has gripped my soul. Shame. I, I can't move. I can't come forward. I can't do these. Shame. The only reason she came out of the shadows and into that Pharisee's house is because somehow she had been met with the mercy and the compassion of Jesus in her heart before that ever happened. Otherwise, she would have stayed in the shadows. She would have stayed in the dark. But that's what the love of Jesus does for somebody. It convinces you that, yes, I've, I've been wrong. Yes, I sinned. But there's mercy with the Lord. And he can forgive me and cleanse me. And because of that, I'm not what I have been. I'm not the product of my mistakes and my sins, my failures. I'm not. You see, Jesus will say that the real church, the church that I'm building, is the church that has as its focus me. Not a structure, not a program, but it will be built upon this conclusion that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the basis of that conviction, I will build my church. It will be people from all kinds of different walks of life and different perspectives, but they commonly have that one conclusion. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not a denomination. It's not a nationality. It's not an ethnicity. It's not a period of history. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's the church. That's the church. Everything else is a wannabe. And sometimes fashioned, created, pushed in his name. But the affection, the central affection and trust is not in him. It's in some culture. It's in some social, the stirring of people. Jesus. I say to you, when shame has gripped your soul and won't let you up, choking the life out of you, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. You find your way into the Gospels. You find your way into that little short book, the shortest one of all of the four, Mark. And you just read and keep reading and keep reading the stories of the life of Jesus. And the Lord, by his Spirit, can open your heart up to realize he is one of infinite compassion and one of infinite power to set captives free and to cause a new creation to come inside an old wrapper. 
where the old things have passed away and all things have become new. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The last I want to just touch on. Hope when church is left to dry. Hope when shame has gripped your soul. Hope when death is at your door. Lazarus, the brother, back again to John 11. Loved by Jesus, the the, the sisters had seen the miraculous works of Jesus and seen him heal the sick and raise ones from all kinds of infirmities. And that's why the sisters said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have, our brother would not have died. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Meaning eternal life starts now. It doesn't just start when we get to heaven. Physical death can only interrupt so much. But that eternal part of life in you that Jesus gives is not cut off by the grave. I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus has now been dead for four days. Jesus, verse 38, Jesus therefore again being deeply moved within because he loved them so much, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it and he said, remove the stone. And Martha resisted because of the length of the time that Lazarus had been dead. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said those things. I said it that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him or loose him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. To prove that he did indeed hold the power of resurrection to raise from the dead. He went to the tomb of Lazarus and called Lazarus' name out. And Lazarus was raised from the dead and came forth as proof that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That would not be the case, however, for every Christian who would die. It was the case of Lazarus. There's been the case of others down through the years. But find John chapter 14 quickly. 
And listen to what Jesus says to the remaining, to the disciples, the, the, the ones who had walked with him and who had seen his great power and were there when Lazarus was raised. Let not your heart be troubled, verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, heaven, are many dwelling places, many places to live. The word that Jesus uses there is very specific in the original language. It's not the idea that heaven is one big place and then there are many different places in heaven for folks to scatter out and set up their homestead and be. He speaks of there being one Father's house with many places to live inside the Father's house. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a father, blessed to be a father. And, but I tell you, when I, I, I so love it when our little, our three, and they're married now, and two grandsons, as a matter of fact, at this point, but when they, when they're all under one roof, I can still get a big lump in my throat even thinking about it. I get choked up. Lord, thank you that all my kids are home. Thank you, Lord, that we can get up and we can, we can have, get some coffee and have breakfast together in the morning. Thank you, Lord, that I can walk by a room and know that They've got their head on a pillow in there. Where did the daddy get that? I believe that's the heart of heaven. That the father wants all his children in his house under one roof. It doesn't mean we're all going to be so choked together that we can't breathe and we're fighting over breakfast. But the idea is he wants his family together. In my father's house are many places to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going, Jesus said, to prepare a place for you. Now he knew Peter. He knew John. He, 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 knew, he knew all of them. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. We, we can shrink that down to the human way to interpret that, but I don't think it's unfair to treat it in that way, that the Lord knows what you like and knows what you don't like. He knows what pleases you and knows what doesn't please you. And what if all this time he's getting a place ready for you so that when you leave this place and go to a place you've never been before, it somehow is going to feel like home. I go to prepare a place for you. When death comes, and it would come to all of these men, not immediately, but only John, it is John the youngest, is the only one who is believed to have not suffered a martyr's death. But all the rest of them put to death for their faith in Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Larry Henry told me this morning that on last Friday, he spent about five hours with with Ellen Halsell in the hospital room as her son, Dan Allen, was in the last stages of his battle with a viciously aggressive cancer. Ellen and Dan and Candace and Dan Allen have been around, been part of Alamo City for years and years. Ellen been a part of our secretarial staff team that has just um, done amazing work and been involved in so much ministry over the years. If I'm getting this story correctly, and I think I am, in January of this year, Little Dan, as he was called, his daddy's Big Dan, Little Dan or Dan Allen, went in to have a checkup for hospital, for life insurance, for life insurance. Passed it with flying colors. That was January of 2019. Later in the spring, developed some very painful areas in his stomach. and He was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer metastasized, spread throughout his body. And during the course of these last weeks, his suffering has been very, very severe. Doctors had tried all they knew to try, the prayers of the church going up. Kept getting worse. Larry, our pastor in charge of Mercy Ministries has touched so many lives over the years and in so many different ways and his heart his heart was just to be there as much as he could with, with Dan and Ellen and Dan Allen. He gets there and he for five hours as soon as he comes in the room Ellen had just was just worn out and collapsed on a couch. He said when she got up and they were able to sit together, Dan Allen is there suffering, struggling. They just began to pray. And they began to try to praise. Some of you have been in a situation like that. Praise is, praise is something that only the Spirit can enable you to do when you're in a setting where it looks like death. Death is in the room. But Larry said, the more they prayed, 
the more their hearts were poured out. They just began to sense that the Lord was in the room. There was no music in the background. There was no, it wasn't a church setting. It was a hospital room, as sterile and cold and hard as those places can be. Larry said, Ellen mentioned that she sensed the same thing. The Lord is here. The Lord is in this room. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. The Lord, the tears were still here and in the eyes. But in the place where it seemed as if death was going to have the final say, in that place, the Lord made his presence known to two of his sheep. It wasn't long after that that the Lord took Dan Allen home. Later that afternoon, later that afternoon, but the Lord was already in the room. Folks, ones can say, oh, that's just hallucination, that's just speculation. Not when you're in a place like that. And it makes no sense for you to feel trust. It makes no sense for you to sense that there is someone that you... Larry said at one point, he said to Ellen, there's somebody else in the room. That was Friday afternoon. And that young man was taken into the arms of Jesus and taken home. You know, I wonder, I wonder if when Jesus stepped up to Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, if that wasn't in some way just a dress rehearsal of what happens every time, that the Lord stepped over to Dan, little Dan, and said, Dan Allen, come forth. Hope has a name. Hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. His rest of that. Jesus would say, I'm going to the Father's house. You know where I'm going? To which one of the disciples says, Lord, we don't, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? To which he said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father's house but through me. He shortened it. You don't have to know where heaven is. You don't have to know how far away it's located. All you need to know is me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the truth. You believe, you believe in me. And I'm the life. I give life. 
I sustain life. I'm life. Folks, Jesus is way more than fill-in-the-blank discipleship notebooks. Jesus is way more than architecture. Jesus is way more than ritual. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. He is the one who enables us to be brought fully alive. Lord, thank you for our time together this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are hope. You are hope. You are our hope. And we receive you, Lord, as all that you are. In Jesus' name.